All righty. All righty. We're good? Yes. Let the show begin. Let the show begin. So this is a very uh, <laughs> ad hoc setup. Um, we are here in the humble abode of Gabriel Enrique Vidia Tavis. And uh, for the full name there, I say, <laughs> sorry, folks, it's a mouthful. <laughs> My long time, long standing friend. We are here today at the intersection, the intersection between business and art, between technology and creativity, between all of the spectrums of work trying to create a common ground. And we're here with Gabe. Since I've known you, Gabe, you've constantly tried to uh, create and innovate in the most forward-thinking way, almost out of anybody <laughs> For that better I know. or worse, yes. <laughs> and uh, if there were any category of innovators, if there were categories of innovators, I would call you the radical forward thinker. Okay. And uh, All right. Viva la revolution. <laughs> whether it was trying to create, you know, brain-stimulating headphones with, with Nuos. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> your design of smart cities or your interest in maglev trains or uh, now with symmetry creating artificial wood out of bacteria. What, what do you think is this, this tendency? Where do you think this tendency comes from for you to leap towards the most out there ideas that you can possibly go towards? I mean, I, I think I actually come from a place that a lot of people start off at. Like, as kids, a lot of us are actively trying to toy with our imaginations and kind of live in the fantasies out there and the magic of stories. And uh, I think I just reveled in it as a kid. Like I very much was interested in finding ways to uh, live out those imaginations. And as I got older, as I learned about how the world works through like science, design, you know, history, all these things about society, uh, I realized, hey, there's a couple tools out there I can use in order to actually bring that so-called fantasy into reality. Because I mean, you know, this is said a lot of times, right? Science fiction uh, can be turned into science. There was a time where things we thought were impossible became possible through ingenuity. And so that really spoke to me uh, growing up. Hmm. A time where science no longer becomes fiction. Yeah. That's the, or the where path the, that Gabe's on. Or where the fiction becomes science, you know? <laughs> See? See? It's, it, it happens. You know, it's not easy, but honestly, I think it's the most exciting path, at least for me anyway. Like, part is also like, you know, I, I get bored with the way how things just work. I get dissatisfied with the status quo. Mm. And then there's always ways to improve it. Why not try for better? Uh, for the sake of our listeners, you guys out there, mm. uh, do you want to talk about any of the ideas that you and I worked on together throughout <laughs> high school? <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a long list. I know the way me and Matt got started was by working on that headphone product. And the thing is, this wasn't just like your average headphone idea. It was really wacky. <laughs> um, I think there's still some promise to it there, mm. but like... You know, it was kind of like um, if it had been a success, it would have felt more like a, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, well, you know, those tech products out there that are kind of like niche and like only a couple people will like buy into it. I feel like that's where our Nuo's headphones could have gone. Basically, uh, there were a couple ideas in there. We were toying with things like uh, thermoelectricity, 
like since headphones are on people's like uh, bodies quite often, we figured why not use the body temperature of an individual to actually power uh, this electronic device instead of using like batteries that often involve like heavy chemicals, heavy metals that aren't great to mine uh, from you know from the earth and they have a lot of environmental consequences. And so thermoelectricity was part of it. We also had some interest in using fiber optics in the headphones. So imagine if there was like a light show going on in the band of the headphones in order to send the music signals throughout the device and to have like a high, uh, I guess you could say like high data stream of all that music within the headphones, like have a high quality sound to it. Um, so there, there was a lot going on there. The third thing too, I think was... Uh, uh, the bone conducting, like we were also trying to find ways to actually have this device vibrate the bone structures around the ear instead of vibrating the eardrum, because that's actually an issue with like traditional headphones. Like uh, they will basically vibrate the air and then hit the eardrums, and that can actually strain and damage the eardrum over time. In fact, I'm pretty sure. A lot of people, myself included, have ear damage because of how traditional uh, headphones work. Hmm. So we were interested in having it in there um, as a way to make headphone usage less damaging for us users. So there was a lot of ideas going in there. But I hope that like one single project like gives people a sense of like where me and Matt were starting with this these kinds of tech projects, if you will. Well, there's a lot of stuff you said there that we could go off of, uh, but we were like 14 years old. So, and man, it goes way back. Gabe and I worked on all type of stuff for like three years, all different ideas. But oh, anyway, yeah. you have a really deep love for the environment that you just touched on a little bit. You know, mm. you made it clear to point out us aspect of what you were talking about and saying that where materials are being sourced from isn't helpful for the environment. Mm -hmm. And you've done so much work in that direction we could go uh we we could go on about that in a lot of ways but maybe just for now before we talk about symmetry or different projects that you're invested in where does your care and investment into the the well-being of our environment like how where does it come like, from where does it come from and, yeah. and how, how if you could give people a perspective that's helpful for them to think about why it, it matters to care about the environment yeah well first of all I feel like there was a tendency not too long ago for people to separate the word or idea of innovation from sustainability. Like innovation was that like, you know, the fancy new gadgets, the next leap from Silicon Valley, whereas sustainability felt like it was something that companies were kind of like forced to do. It wasn't exciting. It was just kind of like this obligation um it didn't draw people in well from my perspective i actually think sustainable companies and projects are the next frontier of innovation uh, these next few years of addressing climate change addressing the biodiversity crisis addressing all sorts of environmental issues i think will breed a whole new generation of entrepreneurs that really care about that stuff and who are going to make amazing things that uh, will transcend what we've seen in the last century. And we have to. Like, guys, this is not like an option. We can't just hope 
mm. that this happens. We have to do this. Uh, the science supports the fact that we need to take action on even just climate change, right? So uh, that's something important to know as far as my perspective on sustainability goes. Um, regarding where it comes from, like where it originates in my life, I'd say it does start quite a bit in middle school where I had a science teacher for uh, basically three years from sixth to eighth grade uh, who was very passionate about getting her students to really understand their responsibility to the environment. Like before climate change was even a mainstream topic being discussed in news networks or even presidential debates, she was telling us as young kids about the urgency and the dangers of climate change. Uh, that was that was a very early impression for me. On top of that, she would take me and my classmates to the forest preserves in Chicago to volunteer uh, and actually remove invasive plants, study the river health, the Chicago River's health. Uh, and that was also pretty formative for me because like, I got to go out into a, you know, a very uh, natural location, as natural as it can get for Chicago, right? Because I'm a, I'm a city kid. So I was very used to uh, that kind of setting. But once you took me even into a small forest, like you have in some of the preserves in Chicago, uh, that opens up my perspective a bit. It gets me excited. I actually loved going out in the forest to find some peace for myself, even to meditate. Uh, so it took on a spiritual dimension in some ways too. Uh, and ever since then, it left uh, me really thinking hard about the environment and how it fits into my life. So I, not too long after that, looked for ways to combine my passion for innovation and sustainability uh, through a number of initiatives. There's Urban Rivers, for example. It's a nonprofit in Chicago that's actually trying to restore habitat in the city. They're trying to build actually a mile-long floating eco-park that mm. will bring back a lot of the wildlife and the health of the Chicago River. I interviewed you about it. Yeah, you, you and yeah, Nick. Yeah, yeah, you interviewed me and Nick. He's still at it. They're, in fact, expanding to Bubbly Creek, which is one of the most polluted uh, spots in the Chicago River. That, that place was nasty, man. Like They had the, the butchering area, like the meat industry was over in that sector of the city, and they were dumping all sorts of chemicals in there. But now we have urban rivers going in and actually setting up flowing gardens to help remediate that uh, water area. So uh, there's hope on the horizon uh, because of groups like Urban Rivers. I was volunteering with them for three years, basically, uh, and got to work on not only the gardens, but also their trash bot project where we were actually designing a robot that could collect trash uh, remotely, but it was almost like style, like a game, like people could go on a public website and actually control the robot remotely to pick up the trash in the Chicago river. So cool. Uh, and you know, I think there, the technology to make it happen on a global scale still needs to develop more, but I see no reason why in the future we can't have trash bots and rivers all over the world that gamify 
the experience of river cleanup. That would so, be so cool. Gamify the river and the cleanup. The, gamify the experience of river cleanup. Yeah. That would be so cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit up your alley too, right? Because you like to gamify things uh, as well. We, I'm a big fan of gamifying things. I think it yes. makes things that would otherwise seem really tedious and boring suddenly super engaging. And then you can, if you can build leaderboard systems and communities around it, then suddenly you have swarms of people doing real work. Yeah. But to them, it's suddenly just a form of game yeah yeah i mean it, it can be something that's uh very impactful um and very approachable for people i appreciate that the most by the way i like it when tech is sustainable um effective and approachable mm, that's right? a great that's great i love that i mean because tech is approachable yeah approachable it, yeah. right because guys i don't think it's a good deal to have this idea that Oh, we will reserve all the technology and the innovation, the building of those innovations to just the top engineering students in or the, the country. The smartest people. Or, yeah. Well, what does that even mean? Right. right? That's you and right. I have talked about this many times. <laughs> what What does the smartest mean? Because you and I have met people that are book smart. They will excel in class, but once you put them in like <laughs> the street setting, or if you, <laughs> or if you put them even in like a uh, very like a dynamic saying like if you put them with urban rivers environment and what the work they do they're not gonna necessarily be smart in that setting I, you know it mm -hmm. depends right you guys get what i mean i i don't like to use that word it doesn't it doesn't capture people mm. properly um it doesn't yeah at all, right at all uh but going back to your original question Matt, about where sustainability originates in my life the last thing i should also mention is that uh, before college, I did actually spend seven weeks in Ecuador with an indigenous community, uh, learning their way of life, uh, and also seeing the problems that they were facing uh, that were sustainability related. Uh, they actually had uh, concerns about the melting ice caps on their mountains, and that was dwindling their water supply. Additionally, I saw firsthand how you know, all their plastic trash, which they were getting from like their local markets, had nowhere to go. There was no disposal system, no recycling system. So they were just burning that stuff in kitchen fire pits, backyard fire pits. And uh, I mean, everyone understands, at least in my immediate environment in the US, that burning the, the plastics is awful uh, for the environment and for human health. So that really hit me because I was getting ready to go to college to study industrial design. And that was where the passion for sustainability revived and really reignited in a really intense way. Uh, and I vowed to myself that I wanted to find a way to dedicate myself to that line of work. I didn't want to compromise it. I didn't want to deviate on it. I didn't want to keep building things with materials that were going to harm the people I care about. That that's big with me. Uh, yeah, you can't just frame the struggle for improving the environment as um, oh this drag or an obligation. It's uh, right, it's, right. It shouldn't seem it, like a drag. It shouldn't be forced. Yeah, it shouldn't be forced for people. Uh, it should be exciting. It should be inspiring. Yeah, yeah. But we also have to remember that there, there, there's important stakes on the line here too. Not to make people panic. I think this is a moment where we can all 
collectively rise up to be, you know, I, I don't want to over dramatize it, but in some ways, heroes. Yeah, like an enthusiastic urgency. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Agreed. In some ways, we need to go beyond just the traditional idea of an entrepreneur and go for that label of heroes. We need to stand up for the real fundamental issues of our time, right? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I'm not quoting this verbatim, but Steve Jobs said something along the lines of thinking that the next great innovations of the century will be a mix of technology and biology. So I'd love to talk about what you are doing with your work today with symmetry and essentially creating artificial wood. I know this isn't the right, right way to define it, but I love to tell people it's the <laughs> wood version of Beyond Meat. <laughs> you used, you used, you used I that one. <laughs> <laughs> fake, fake wood that's meant for real wood purposes. And uh, I know that there's other stuff beyond wood that, no pun intended, that you also want to tackle. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to keep a straight face for that. <laughs> so on a tackle, the symmetry. So please, uh, if you don't mind going into depth of your like journey starting and building symmetry wood, you were featured in the World Economic Forum. Uh, you won the James Dyson Vacuum Foundation Award. I know it's not the vacuum's not in the name of the award, but yeah, yeah, some yeah. people know it. Yeah, yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Pe people gotta be given the context. Yeah, here. yeah. Uh, um, tell us. Yeah. So uh, I'm glad you did quote that. Uh, part from jobs about the intersection of biology and technology uh, that's going to be for sure huge the way symmetry plays into that uh, basically the story starts right after i come back from ecuador and i start my time in college uh, so there was you know that period where i came back i was so worried about the environmental issues going on in ecuador and I thought to myself, you know, what if I use my spare time in college outside of class to actually research more sustainable materials to build products with, maybe even make my own materials. Uh, and so that's what I did. That's what you did. Uh, I, exactly what I did. I, I spent two years doing online research, finding out about these bio designers using a material called bacterial cellulose to make uh, paper, to make a uh, leather jackets. You can see one of the example of that from Suzanne Lee. She did a TED talk uh, where she actually showed a jacket she made from this bacterial cellulose, which is a non-toxic and super regenerative substance that comes from the kombucha industry, actually. The kombucha industry makes tons of this stuff every year. Uh, it's not the only way you can grow it, but it is, I believe, the most common uh, and straightforward way to get it nowadays. So that's just something to note, guys. Um, I find out about this bacterial cellulose, and then I realize it's very similar to the cellulose in wood. Uh, cellulose makes up about 50% of tree-based wood. So why not take that uh, cellulose from the bacteria and put it into that, you know, that wood structure? And so that's what we did. Uh, I was able to actually find uh, natural binders that would basically encase the cellulose and then harden and shrink around it to give it a really rigid structure. And the end result is you have a material which we've called pyrus that is dense, it's very hard surface, it's dark colored, 
very similar to a lot of the exotic tropical hardwoods. So things like ebony, like mahogany, uh, like rosewood, these things are crazy expensive. Uh, they kind of tread the line between like plastic and wood in many ways, you know, because uh, people can mistake ebony for being like a totally black plastic because of how dense and how uh, uniform colored it is, uh, uniformly colored. So uh, that's something to note. But the other thing to keep in mind about tropical hardwoods is that the destruction that's going on for them is ridiculous. We actually have illegal loggers in places like the Amazon that are interested in targeting those really high-valued, high-priced mm. woods to the point where they'll cut down 20 trees to get to one single high-value tree. Wow. And even if they get to that high-value tree, they may cut it down, and then they look inside and they may see, oh, wait, this thing's not like pure black like we want it to be. Uh, toss it out. So they'll only use like maybe 10% of the high-value wood that they actually get a hold of. And then they'll mm. export that to the U.S. for high profits. The other thing to keep in mind is that those loggers are creating roads into the forest in order to get that wood. And those roads can later be used by uh, ranchers, by plantations, who further degrade and destroy the forest. So it's a chain reaction. Mm. And the loggers often start the whole cycle. Well, our job at Symmetry is actually to stop the beginning of that cycle or slow it down significantly uh, by creating this bacterial-based wood. Uh, we actually go to the uh, kombucha breweries uh, in Chicago, in the Midwest currently. Uh, we take the waste, the, the cellulose waste off their hands, and then we turn it into wood. We've been able to make jewelry. We've been able to make guitar picks. Uh, we've been able to even now make planks of this stuff. Uh, and it's excited a lot of folks, as mm. you've pointed out, there's been media networks, there's been award groups that have been supporting us. And uh, we're really now at the point where we're doing R&D for symmetry, we're developing even new formulas. And uh, we're hoping to get our first major investments uh, sometime next year, actually, nice. so we can really like, take this company to the next level. Do you ever hear any criticisms from people about it? Oh, since it's not the real mahogany, they're still going to yeah. go cut down the trees anyway. And sure. they're not really preventing it. And like, what do you have to say to that kind of criticism? Well, you know, I should point out that there's no singular company or no single company that is going to solve the entire deforestation crisis. We are going to need a coalition of companies and a variety of solutions working together. Mm. I consider symmetry one piece of the puzzle. And we're a spark happy. of inspiration, maybe. Sure, a spark of inspiration. To Not to mention as well that, okay, maybe we don't totally replace the tropical hardwoods, but even a, a significant reduction is a big win there. And also, maybe some people look at Pyrus and they see how it's kind of like plastic and they're like, why don't I use that instead of petroleum plastic? Mm. And that still makes a difference, right? Because now we have less petroleum plastic that gets made and gets used and gets sent to the oceans. So there's a variety of ways I think that this could play out in ways that maybe I'm not even foreseeing right now. 
part of being an inventor is you got to kind of let your invention go out into the wild and grow up. Yeah, yeah. You cannot predict everything that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, yeah, yeah, you can't. <laughs> it, it, there's a little, there's, this is where the risk taking can really happen. You're like rolling the dice. You're, yeah. You have a theory that it's going to work some ways, but then maybe it takes a whole different direction. So, you know, you have to be willing to adapt. And uh, I do feel like my team understands that and is really working on ways to, you know, be accepting of, of that and to be prepared for that. Um, not to mention as well, I mean, symmetry may not always be just the bacterial cellulose wood company. I mean, heck, I went over to Indonesia recently. To yeah, tell us, tell us. Yeah, I was in Indonesia recently at a conference of all these amazing makers and designers. It was the Fab Fest. It was, that's what it was called. Basically, I got to work on a, a team where we were designing, uh, you know, prefab joints for uh, bamboo architecture, or just trying to find ways to make it easier to assemble bamboo poles together. Because some of the buildings they had in Bali, shout out to Bamboo U and the Green School. They're amazing buildings. Uh, they'll take your breath away when you look at them. And bamboo is it's one of the fastest growing organisms, plants in the world. Uh, and it can store carbon uh, even better than quite a number of trees, actually, because it has a high silica content. So when that bamboo actually like falls to the the floor, the forest floor, uh, or you know starts to reach the end of its life cycle, uh, that carbon can actually be better retained within like the soil or the rest of the ecosystem, as opposed to escaping out into the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. So I think bamboo will actually be huge. And uh, I could see symmetry potentially one day getting involved on that in, in that because the bacterial cellulose wood might make more sense for small to mid-sized applications. Uh, and then if you're looking at construction, which is of course a huge application of wood, uh, you may see us trying to find ways to kind of blur the lines between other natural materials and bacterial cellulose. So mm. that's just something to point out. Okay, like yes, Chris, they can. These people can offer their criticisms, but I think we are at least offering some some contributions, some meaningful contributions. Absolutely, adding some meaningful contributions for sure. And so you think you could get into bamboo? You said uh, pyrus might be able to be used for plastic. Maybe you're using it for wood. Right? So do you yeah. see yourself potentially getting into? And you've been really excited about materials for a long time. As you've alluded to earlier, what's the, what what is the wor the wonders of materials to you? And uh, I don't know what it is, guys. It's still something I'm trying to <laughs> uh, pinpoint myself. But uh, I'd say I've always been drawn to like variety, like having lots and lots of choices to pick from for something I'm creating, right? Um, so, like for example, I like you hear people who like became engineers after they played with Legos, right? But for me, when I looked at Legos, I was actually bored as hell. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought... This I didn't stuff, have too much fun with Legos either, to be honest. Right? I mean, it was like basically a single material, ABS plastic, and they're, you can only like kind of stack them up, right? <laughs> I mean, some people get really resourceful, yeah, yeah, really true. specialized, and can like figure that out, build a starship, build a robot with the Legos. But I was actually irritated that 
I could only make with ABS plastic, right? Mm. I, I was like, can I find a way to break beyond those those boundaries? And so uh, I found books that you know, fueled my interest further. Uh, I remember walking into some bookstores that had these titles and covers that just immediately caught my attention. I went to buy it and I was just constantly perusing through the pages and picking up knowledge on all the different the different materials out there. Um, and honestly, I feel like some of those books were a little lacking on the biomaterials, like, mm. like Pyrus, like my company's material. Um, I feel like that area has a lot of expansion to do because for so long, we've been using the last hundred years to promote petrochemicals and these toxic ingredients in our products. And that's just not acceptable anymore. Uh, you, I, I personally find it ridiculous at how many, uh, <laughs> even like warnings that you get on products warning like, oh, this might cause cancer. Like maybe it's really harmful to harvest it, or maybe it's going to cause a lot of damage once you have to throw it away. Um, a lot, a lot of times in the past, designers were not encouraged to think about these questions and that's just not going to work anymore. Um, that's actually why midway through college, I uh, left the industrial design program at my university and I switched to the new sustainable design program. Uh, I wasn't happy with where industrial design was going. So that, that's my perspective on mm. materials and design. Wow, that's a lot to chew on. I'm glad everybody at the intersection is getting these golden nuggets right now. And I hope a lot of people from the creative realm can start to think about, hmm, how could I partner with material science people or people that just work with different materials? Because I'm sure there's a lot of fashion designers out there and uh, people who just like build different stuff, but more for like the arts uh, would yeah. be really excited about using different kind of materials that they haven't seen before. Right. So connecting with people like you and other materials people, I hope that inspires them. Yeah, you're a big fan of like fab labs and maker spaces oh, and, yeah, and places where people can openly build and create things together. And, and I've spent a lot of time with you either just saying hi or, <laughs> or working on our own stuff at all yeah. kinds of maker spaces around. What, what are some of the places you visited over the years that you found to be like the coolest maker spaces? It could be in Chicago or anywhere else. And what made them cool? And uh, what would the ideal maker space look like in your... Uh -huh in your mind well i hate to break it to you guys but i don't know if my ideal makerspace exists yet um mm. i might have to change that later. <laughs> <laughs> um but i will give a shout out to some of the ones that have been very helpful over the years i mean even right now symmetry works out of uh m hub which is uh in chicago I will say it's the most well-equipped and well-staffed of the maker spaces in the city because basically it's like a co-working space meets a factory. Like you can do your desk work there. You can have conferences. You can have telephone calls and private booths. But at the same time, you can also access their all their fabrication tools. They got 3D printers. They got laser cutters. They got um, CNC machines. They got metal tools as well, things that can carve out custom aluminum blocks for like even engines in a car uh what else we got spray booths i mean uh, woodworking labs uh, it, it goes on and on so 
uh, there's the whole idea behind a fab lab and a makerspace is it's meant to try and empower you to make almost anything like that idea of right, right. breaking past the possibilities. Obviously, as I, as I've already hinted to all of you, that really calls to me. I am a big believer in trying to move, you know, fab labs and makerspaces towards uh, really localized production. By that, I mean, maybe instead of importing uh, plastic or wood or metal sheets to build products out of in the fab lab, could we start to grow more of our own materials mm. in the fab labs? Can we start to even look at how indigenous cultures may have gotten their own materials back in the old days for their houses, for their uh, personal belongings? Can we study how they did it and empower that with modern technology? Um, I think that will be a key thing to add into all the makerspaces. I mean, I'm even now really into uh, uh, food, like making, like just cooking stuff and studying fermentation, for example. Why don't we have more of that in the makerspaces? Because there's a hidden magic behind that when we get living organisms involved to empower our making. Uh, that really opens up uh, possibilities. And also, I think to give you guys even even clearer picture of what an ideal makerspace might look like for me, I'm also interested in seeing makerspaces that are less super isolated. Because, like Matt, you might remember that some of these makerspaces we went to are sometimes in like warehouses or factories that are like kind of shut off, where yeah. they have like literal bars on the windows and. The, in Brooklyn, they're unapproachable. They're, yeah, in the, unapproachable. They're cool when you get inside, right? And you feel like you're part of some secret club, <laughs> but uh, it doesn't feel like it's connected mm -hmm. with the rest of the city. Um, heck, there was even an experience I had in Brooklyn where I basically walked in to this like really old, like kind of raggedy looking apartment complex in uh, Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, the thing is this first floor was basically like bare concrete floor and wooden, uh, walls. So it looked like it was like abandoned. And then I, there was some random guy standing in the corner. I asked him, Hey, I'm looking for so-and-so makerspace. And I said, Oh, just go upstairs. And I see this like one door in the corner and I open it. And I see it's taking me up these rickety wooden stairs to get to the makerspace. I keep going up like two, three flights of these stairs. And I make it to the door and it's basically like this, like, again, <laughs> shady warehouse wooden door with like a, a metal, yeah, yeah, with like a metal, uh, like they basically plasma cut, I think their sign. So it was like this metal sign that was hanging on the door with the name of the makerspace. And then I walk in, it's actually cozy. They got like couches, they got a kitchen in there, they've got their tools in the far back. Uh, so Again, it felt like you were in like some cool club, like you were in on like biggest secret in Brooklyn. But uh, most it wasn't open. It wasn't yeah. approachable. Most it people was... weren't. Who, who's gonna? Most people would have thought it was crazy to go up those stairs. <laughs> what I see in the future is having the makerspace very much out in the open, public, connected to all of the social and environmental elements in the city. So what if? Maybe one day we have, uh, you know, Urban Rivers works with me to build 
uh, makerspace connected to the Chicago River. People could kayak to the makerspace or they could just walk to it or take the car. It's brightly lit, opening for everyone. And people can go in there, grow their own materials, do f food production, do the usual makerspace stuff with 3D printing, laser cutters, CNC machines. Basically expand the idea of what it means to make almost anything in the way that empowers everyone, not just right. the occasional nerds. Not just, right? yeah. <laughs> not just the, the fringe nerds or the secret social club or yes, exactly. make it an open accessible thing for people who just want to make stuff. Correct, correct. And I mean, I, I did start that. to see this happen um, in the university setting. Like my university yeah, yeah, you definitely. Uh, has the Siebel Center for Design. Shout out to them. Um, they have a, I think a building that was getting closer to that idea and they have a philosophy of intersectional uh, innovation, like combining all the disciplines at the university to make new products. Mm, the make intersection, new intersectional yes. innovation. Yes. Uh, this is good for Matt's podcast. Here. <laughs> um, they were really big into that and had a building that was also inviting. Um, I don't see that yet in Chicago or major cities. I, I don't know why that is for what particular reason there might be, but maybe it's just, you know, someone hasn't proposed the idea yet. Right. Uh, I would love to see that, especially in maybe disserviced areas of mm -hmm. uh, our city or in other cities. So yeah, that's my thinking. To finally wrap this up right now, the intersection is just a audience. It hasn't crossed the chasm to community yet, but as the intersection hopefully crosses the chasm into a community of an intersection of interdisciplinary talent, who are some people that you'd be enthusiastic to connect with in what areas of work? I mean, I'm always done to chat with um, all sorts of people. I mean, I, I especially like talking to folks that are kind of up in my industry with the bio design, biotechnology, but also anyone who's like, really centered on sustainability. You may not even be involved in biotech, but you are really dedicating yourself to helping out humanity with our environmental crises. Um, I really enjoy speaking with those people who really like to prioritize that kind of work. So um, I am down to chat online. Um, if you happen to be in Chicago or if I happen to be in your city, uh, then yeah, let's, uh, let's also find a time to meet up in person. I do know for Symmetry, there's a chance we might be moving some operations to LA. So any LA folks may want to reach out in the future. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of possibilities, I would say. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show yeah. today, Gabe. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. Woo! Oh, yeah. <laughs>